Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Well, it's probably a, uh, a record. The world has not stopped. We are doing two messages on money two weeks in a row. And uh, the reason I say is because we, we, we have never, probably to a fault, we've never talked about money. We don't pass an offering plate. And some of that is, is purposeful, but, but like I said, probably, probably to a fault. Um, I remember a time when Alyssa and I were, this, is, this always sticks out in my mind, we were at a, at a meeting, at a, at a Christian meeting, and um, they were getting ready to do the offering, and they called up their big gun, you know, they called up the guy that was, that was, uh, he was, he was the man to do the, to do the offering. And he got up and one of the, Alyssa and I always giggle about this. One of the first, he, the first thing he said was, and he just had this salesman uh, aura to him. He said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and generosity. And then he went into his sales pitch and uh, you know, you felt like the biggest schmuck in the room if you, you know, like the spirit was not there with you if you didn't give generously. We're not going to do that. We will, as long as I'm alive, we will never do that here. Um, and the reason why is because coercive giving, coerced giving doesn't honor the Lord, right? I mean, last week we heard from Second Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver, not one who is, um, gives out of obligation or begrudgingly, and not someone who's had their arm twisted hard enough to give. God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, so it's not that giving isn't important. It is massively important, but on, on a different level, on a deeper level. It's not just can we extract money out of people. But it is um, giving from the right place in our heart. It is a heart matter. So from this passage, I am extremely excited to preach today. Um, and, it, and it is an important subject to talk about. And I trust it won't be three or four more years before we talk about it again. Um, there are a number of reasons why it's so important to talk about. Number one, I mean, this, first, first of all, it's because Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus talked about money, possessions, and people and their money and possessions quite a bit. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says that 15% of everything Jesus said relates to money and possessions. 15%. That's actually more than he spoke on heaven and hell combined. So he thought it was a pretty important thing. For instance, in Luke chapter 21, we have this story of this, uh, this poor old widow and all these people are putting money into the offering box or bucket or whatever. And all these folks are putting in out of their surplus. And this woman puts in her last amount of money that she had. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this, poor, this woman gave more than them because she gave out of her poverty and they gave out of their surplus. In Luke 12, we hear of a man from Jesus. This is Jesus talking about a rich man who built bigger barns to hold more of his stuff. And Jesus said in verse 20, he says, you fool, this night your soul is being required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Of course, we know the man who jumps off the page. We like this man a lot here at Real Life Church in Matthew 13, 44, who was walking through a field and he saw that, found this treasure in a field. And he was so excited about this treasure. It was so valuable to him that in joy or joyfully, he went and sold everything he had to get all the money he needed to buy that field so he could have that treasure. And Mark 10, verse 21, we or Mark 10, uh, Jesus is approached by this rich young man who said, I want to follow you. And Jesus probed his heart and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And the man couldn't do it. He walked away. Not only is it important because Jesus talked about it, but because it, there's a straight line between our spiritual lives and how we handle money and possessions. There is a straight line from our spiritual lives, our heart condition before God and how we handle money. I love this story. It just, just seemed to kind of jump out to me this last week in a way that it hadn't before. In Luke 3, John the Baptist, after he was baptizing people, and some people came to him and John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, remember that story? Uh, and basically saying, live a life that is in keeping with your profession of faith and repentance. And then three different groups of people came to him and said, what should we do? The first group of people was, it just says, the crowds. And John the Baptist said to them, okay, here's what you should do. Your clothes and food you should share with those who don't have any. The second group of people were, were tax collectors. And the way John the Baptist addressed them was, okay, here's what you should do. Don't take more money than you should. And the third group of people, were, uh, the third group was uh, soldiers. And they said, what should we do? And John the Baptist said, don't extort money from people and be content with your pay. Be content. Apparently, for John the Baptist, how people handled their money and possessions was the fruit of genuine spiritual transformation. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, <clears throat> Jesus is coming into town. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's a very wealthy man. And he wanted to see Jesus. And so he climbed up into a tree. And uh, Jesus is coming through, and he, and he looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I must dine in your house today. Come down. Zacchaeus, it says, came down with joy and, and had him come into his home. After Zacchaeus had spent some time with Christ, um, Zacchaeus said to Jesus, listen. I mean, basically, I mean, it just kind of says he jumped into this. So apparently after some time he encountered Christ, he said, of all the riches I have, I'm going to give half to the poor. And if I have extorted money or if I have defrauded anyone, I'm going to return it fourfold. You know what Jesus' response was? Salvation has come to this house. Right? I mean, there was something so deep that happened in him. Of course, he could have just said that and not done it, but, but he did. Salvation had come, and the proof was his heart had been transformed because the hold of money and possessions was loosened. 
Of course, we see in the, in the early church in Acts chapter 2, after the, the Spirit was poured out, and many were added to their number, it says that they were doing strange things, amazing things. They were selling possessions, their own possessions, so that not one person among them would be in need. This is a very important subject. It's also an important subject because giving people are happy people. Giving people are actually the happiest people. Hudson Taylor, the, uh, the missionary in China, started China Inland Mission. He said, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. Sounds like the words of Jesus to the Apostle Paul that Paul speaks in Acts 20:35 when he says, You are more blessed to give than to receive. Proverbs 22:9 says, He who is generous will be blessed. On the other hand, contrary to this, in 1 Timothy 6, it says, Sorrow and destruction follow those who desire to be rich. These words in Matthew 6, the words of Jesus in our text, are for your joy. They are for your happiness. They are for your eternal and full joy. But they do sound a little radical to us as well. It seems counterintuitive, but much in the Christian life is very counterintuitive. These words of Jesus to us are are for our full and eternal joy, but they do seem radical, and they are radical. But they are true, and they are for our happiness. You know, I was thinking this morning, um, some of what this passage says is hard for us to take and understand, especially because we live in a country that is just so affluent. It's just, I mean, everyone in this room is wealthy, comparative compared to other people in other countries. Everyone in this room has much. Even the poorest person in America is probably far wealthier than 80% of the world's population. So what I want you to do is I want you to test to see if I'm explaining Jesus' words accurately here. I don't want you just to take what I say on face value. If I'm not, then forget all about it. Just blow it off. Because my words don't matter a bit. But if I'm echoing and accurately explaining the words of Jesus, then I just would say, let God be God and let these words speak to us. And let them bring us into this fuller joy that God has for us in Christ. Fuller joy than we could ever have from any possession or any amount of money that we could ever have in this world. These words have the power to revolutionize our view of money and possessions and to free us to enjoy Christ more. John Owen was a pastor in the 1600s. He was a Puritan in England. And he said these words, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. 
Jesus wants to draw us into the glory of who he is, the beauty of who he is, the treasure that he is, so that our tight grip of money, and listen, I'm talking to me as much as you, our tight grip on money and possessions begins to loosen. So in Matthew 6, 19 to 34, there are three commands. I want to state them right now and then back up and go through each one of them and see how they're connected. Okay, three commands we have here. The first command is, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where those things won't happen. They can't happen. The second command is, do not be anxious. It's stated three times, but it's just the command not to be anxious. And the third command is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So let's look at those one at a time. I'm actually going to look at seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because that seems to be the overarching command. That seems to be the overarching emphasis of Jesus in this passage. So verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? The things that we need. Not everything we want necessarily, but everything that the Father knows that we need will be added to us. Jesus, when he came on the scene in his ministry, came with a message. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Matthew and Mark for sure. Luke is probably a little bit later on. But the first words that came out of Jesus and his ministry to other people were the words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew chapter 6, just earlier than the text we're reading today, Jesus teaches you and I to pray in the famous Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom, or you might be asking, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God in our lives. So the command to seek first the kingdom of God means to passionately pursue the experience of the saving, life-transforming, sanctifying, joy-producing, love-producing kingdom of God. To live under the rule and reign of God. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about these things out here. It's about this massive transformation that happens in our lives that produces righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. We're to seek and pursue that with all of our hearts. This is where joy is. This is where peace is. This is where life is. Um, Jesus, earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5 to 7 is called, um, oftentimes called the, uh, um, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and a large group of people, and he's giving them some teaching. The first seven or eight verses in Matthew 5 is called the Beatitudes. Blessed are these people. Blessed are these people. In Matthew 5, 6, it describes a a group of people that are really blessed. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Isn't that what you and I want? Is satisfaction, 
I mean, a joy that brings such satisfaction. Other translations say they shall be filled. Apart from satisfaction that's found in Christ and seeking his kingdom, you and I are all like Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. We do, don't we? We try in so many places, in so many ways, but it is found in the kingdom of God. It is found by seeking first his kingdom to live under his reign and his rule and all of the blessings, righteousness, peace, satisfying joy is found there. You and I, at our root level, at the deepest level of our hearts, we are all looking to be satisfied. You and I, from the moment we were born, have been on a treasure hunt. You know that? To satisfy what seems to be missing in our lives. It's found in the kingdom of God. By seeking first the kingdom and his right, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Command number two here in our passage is in verse, verses 29 and 30. They say, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Second command is to not lay up treasures on earth for yourselves, but lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. So apparently this is one of the specific ways that you and I are called to seek first God's kingdom. One of the specific ways we're called to seek first the kingdom of God is to lay up treasures in heaven, eternal treasures there, rather than accumulating more and more treasures down here. This will sound like a hard saying unless you see that Jesus is calling us into greater joy in this passage. It will seem like Jesus is just a killjoy because he just doesn't want us to have stuff. No, but he wants to call us into something that's greater, something that's more glorious, a joy that is found in him. So what Jesus is saying here is to seek to maximize your eternal joy in God rather than your temporary joy in things on earth. Now, I love how if, if Jesus would have stopped here, if he would have said, don't lay up treasures for yourselves on earth, don't do it, period. We would think, ooh, Jesus is against treasure and pleasure and joy. But he's not. He says, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Right? He's, Jesus is not calling you and I to some kind of joyless, stoic self-denial. Of course, we are called to deny ourselves, but not as an end in itself, but as a means to a greater end, as a means to be satisfied in something far superior, namely in God and in Christ, and in heaven, and in the eternal treasures that will be ours, or that are ours, and that we will experience in the future. So Jesus is not against storing up treasure. He commands us to store up treasure. He's against storing up treasures in the wrong place. 
You guys see that? He's not against storing up treasure. He's against storing up treasure in the wrong place. Don't, don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Jesus is saying, don't accumulate earthly treasures. Accumulate for yourself heavenly treasures. Accumulate and, and just, it's like heap on more and more and more accumulation on heavenly eternal treasures. Jesus makes it clear in verse 21 that our hearts move toward what we treasure. Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts move toward what we treasure. And this is just, I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to show us where our hearts are moving. Um, I, th- I think sometimes we get into trouble with passages like this. You know, Reed talked about last week, sometimes certain Bible passages are used to beat people over the head and to you know, coerce them into giving more money or whatever. And this passage may have, been, may, may have been used that, may be used that way in some places. I certainly don't want to do that. But I do want to say what it says and ask the Holy Spirit to show us. Ask him to show us where we are at with this. Our hearts move toward what we treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is why our money or what we do with our money is a matter of worship. It is is a matter of worship. Worship is more than than gathering and singing. We, We love that. We want to do that. But worship is about all of our lives. And what we do with our money is a matter of worship. Martin Luther once said the last part of it, I, he was um, credited with saying, I don't know if he did or not. The last part of a man that is converted is his wallet. Because our hearts move toward what we treasure. So I hope it's clear that the kind of transformation that needs to happen is something in our hearts deep within. And this also shows us why coercion never works. It might work to get more money in the offering plate, but it never works to change people's hearts and to make them worshipers of God with their money. Coercive means to extract money out of people stinks to high heaven. And I I think God hates it. I think he hates it. There might be $1,000 more in the offering plate than there would have been, but I don't think God gives a rip about that. I think it stinks to you and I, if you've ever been in a setting like that, and I think it stinks to God. So what you and I need is a change of treasure so that giving is done freely from the heart and with joy. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves someone who is moved in their heart to give cheerfully because this green stuff in my hands is not my ultimate treasure anyways. Jesus is. So what is it about the kind of treasure in heaven that provides incentive to live this kind of way for you and I? Whether you, feel, whether you have a lot or a little, 
You know, um, the sin of greed is an equal opportunity sin. Poor people and rich people, women and men, white, black, Latino, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it, it affects everyone, and we need to be set free from it. So what is it about this treasure in heaven that provides incentive to live this way? There's at least two things that I want to point out. Number one, the treasure Jesus tells us to accumulate is eternal. It's eternal. It goes on and on and on. There is no end to it. Earthly treasures will wear out, they'll be destroyed, or they'll be taken. That's just a fact of life. At some point, it's going to be gone. Moth and rust can destroy, thieves can break in and steal. But not our eternal treasures that we have in Christ and in heaven. Uh, It was uh, said that, I read somewhere that when John D. Rockefeller, who was this, you know, tycoon, in the early 1900s, when he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did John leave? How much money did he leave? The accountant said, all of it. Every penny. He didn't take any with him. Financial advisors tell us to plan for decades into the future. At least uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're under a certain age, I suppose they would. Right? They would tell you, okay, plan 30, 40 years out. Right? When you get out of college and you talk to a financial advisor or you get a 401k plan with your, your job or something, they, they are telling you to plan out far. And that's wise, right? Because it gives you the benefit of compound interest and accumulation. Jesus here tells us to plan for eternal accumulation. I don't know about you, but I just, I think that, I think that, I think I need, and maybe you do too. I was going to say we, but I'll just speak for myself. I need an awakening to the reality of eternity. A hundred years, if you live a hundred years, that's a nice, long life on earth. But it's like the snap of a finger, the blink of an eye, In light of eternity, James says your life is a vapor. You're here one moment, you're gone the next. He's talking about in in light of eternity, this life is so short. And Christians among all people should be awakened to eternity. You and I live on the edge of eternity all the time. I think you and I would be helped in so many ways, not the least of which our handling of money and possessions, if we just had an awakening to the reality of eternity. Lord, what what does the psalmist say? Lord, um, teach me to count my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Right? Our days are short here. And then eternity. So, the first incentive to live by storing up treasures in heaven is that Those treasures are eternal. The second is that the supreme treasure is God himself. And I just would say, if if we forfeit this, we forfeit eternity. If we live a life by treasuring and valuing not God, but stuff, 
then we forfeit God and we forfeit God forever. When we are with the Lord, eternity with um, in heaven and the, new he- and the new heavens and new earth will be amazing. We'll be with loved ones. Um, the, the, Jesus said he's preparing dwelling places for us. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Mansions, maybe. Who knows? Food. The food's going to be great. I, when I think about heaven, when I talk to my kids about heaven, I, talk, I almost always bring up food because our family loves food. We just do. I do. And uh, Alyssa and I and all of our kids do. There's going to be amazing Food, loved ones, dwellings, the things we'll get to do there, it will be exhilarating. It will not be boring. But God himself will be our supreme treasure there. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, I haven't read it for years, but I do remember the very first part of the book. He said, if you could go to heaven and you could have all the people you loved there and all all the hobbies you enjoyed doing here, you could do there. And the food was amazing and it just was, it was awesome. And he said, but Jesus wasn't there. Would it be heaven? First time I read that, I was like, oh my goodness. God is our supreme treasure. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I get this idea from verse 24 where Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Right? No one can serve two masters, for either he will love or either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To serve money doesn't mean to make a meal for money, doesn't mean to see if you can help money in any kind of way. To serve money in this context means to pursue money. And all of the benefits money and possessions can give us. That's what it means to pursue money. It means to love money. Be devoted to it. And all the things that money and possessions can give to us. But to serve God. It doesn't mean we supply anything that he lacks. It means that we love him and pursue him. And pursue all of the blessings and benefits that he can give us. You can't serve God and money. We can go after transient pleasures of what money can give us in this world or the eternal joy of Christ, heaven, and eternal possessions, but not both. And Jesus makes that very clear here. I mean, in my mind, I've thought, well, can't, why can't we have both? And again, remember, we're talking about what our heart moves toward. What makes us tick? We can have one or the other, but not both. So lay up treasures for yourself. I want to appeal to some self-interest here. Lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. C.S. Lewis said these amazing words in his book, The Weight of Glory. 
Listen to these words. These are powerful words. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. I'd put money in there. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't settle for temporary, transient, things that will be taken and destroyed. Don't give your life to these things. The third command. So we talked about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've talked about not laying up treasures on earth, but laying up treasures in heaven. And here's the third command. Verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. The word therefore connects us with the previous verse. So verse 24, if you remember, says you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. In other words, serving money, loving money, and all the things that money can give us leads to a life of anxiety. However, serving God, loving God, treasuring God, and all he can do for us leads to a life of freedom from anxiety. The phrase, do not be anxious, is a condition of the heart where we are freed from our addiction to pleasures here on earth and pursue with a passion our pleasure in God. And God is the source and the fountain of all life and joy. So we are not seeking in vain if that's where we're going for it. The word anxious means to be concerned about, to be troubled with, to look out for, to seek to promote one's own interests. The NIV and the the New American Standard translates this phrase to worry about your life. And so when when we use this word anxiety, don't be anxious, don't think in your mind, don't have a panic attack or don't have some kind of nervous breakdown because of some kind of anxiety attack. Think more about being preoccupied. Is there, I mean, and if we define anxiety that way, is there anything that defines our culture more than, I mean, my goodness. I, I read a stat a while ago about how many people struggle with anxiety disorders in our country. I don't know if these are people that are actually diagnosed, and we may differ on diagnoses, all that stuff, but just the experts out there, 40 million adults. That's 18% of every adult in our country. And we are so preoccupied. We are so busy. We are so troubled with, concerned about, seeking to promote our interests in this or that or the other thing. The word trans- this word that's translated here, anxious, is translated cares in Mark, 9- or excuse me, Mark 4.19 when it says, But the cares of the world, 
the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. He's, it's the story of the, of, it's the uh, parable of the, of the sower, where he's going out and sowing seed, and some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns are the cares of the world. If you were like me, you may not have what would be clinically called a disorder, but I know how troubled and anxious I am sometimes about just earthly things, things that I don't need, but just things that I want. I was talking with a friend this last week who just was just being honest about his own trouble with this, and he, he, he's been wa- uh, wanting to get a new vehicle, doesn't need a new vehicle, but wants to trade his, his car in for another one. And he said the last week or week and a half, he was spending so much time looking for the right car, seeing how much his car is worth so he can get the trade-in value that he needs. And I mean, all this stuff, all this time. And his peace was gone. His joy was gone. I mean, this thing that, there's nothing wrong with getting a new car. But he was anxious, troubled, concerned. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Because remember, Jesus is not talking about, I don't think he's just talking to poor people who actually may not have food to put on their table today. Because the context is accumulating things here or accumulating treasures in heaven. So what is the antidote to anxiety, trouble, preoccupation? It is to serve God and not money. It's to seek God and pursue God and and find our joy in God and our treasure in him and all that he can do for us rather than in money and possessions and what they can do for us. And Jesus, we're not going to get into it because there's a lot there. Um, Suffice it to say, you have a father who knows what you need and is happy to supply what you need. I love what Luke 12 says. It's, it's a parallel passage to this. And it says, fear not, little children. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus speaks these words in order to bring you and I into the riches of joy in him. I hope you see that. Here's what Jesus wants for us. He wants you and I to seek first his kingdom, to accumulate eternal treasures in heaven for our everlasting joy, and to live free from worldly cares. That doesn't sound so bad. That's what he wants for us. To seek his kingdom where there's joy and righteousness and peace abounding for all who come to him and submit to him and live under his reign and rule. He wants us to accumulate eternal treasures that will never end forever and ever. And he wants us to live free from anxiety and worldly cares. This is the fruit of having Christ as our Lord and Savior and treasure. So you might be asking, okay, what do I do with my money then? (laughs) Right? We're not going to pass an offering plate today. (laughs) Although I I do want to share a testimony because... We were joking around at prayer on Wednesday night. But there was a really powerful testimony. 
If you haven't listened to Reed's message from last week, I strongly encourage you to go online and read the notes or listen to it. I think we might have missed the first few minutes, but most of it's there. Someone made a beeline for Reed after church. I'm not going to embarrass her or say her name because I didn't ask her about sharing this, but I will share her anonymously. She made a beeline for Reed after church. Tears in her eyes. And this is a talk on money, okay? And this is... um, and she said, you will never believe what happened this morning. I just, I felt like we need to start, I need to start giving to Real Life Church. And so I brought a check today and I dropped it in the offering plate or in the, in the box and back. And for her, it was such an amazing thing that Reed talked on it last week. I mean, I think that's, I think that's amazing. And we never talk about money. But she was tugged in her heart. She was moved in her heart. And God just spoke to her so powerfully. I mean, in in other words, confirming what she was doing, giving a biblical basis for it. It was was a great testimony. So what do we do with our money? Three things. I I, I want to... I'm saying these things, but I'm asking God to do this miracle in us. Because I'm going to ask you to see your money and possessions in a different way. So I'm asking God, do this miracle in our lives as I say these things. Okay, number one, see your money and possessions as a means to accumulate eternal treasures in heaven. I've said that before, but view your actual money and possessions this way. As a means to accumulate more and more and greater and eternal treasures in heaven. In heaven, eternal, accumulated, increased joy in your treasure in heaven. Number two, see your money and your possessions as a resource to magnify the worth and beauty of Christ rather than earthly things. Your money and possessions are to be used to magnify the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ instead of stuff. I need help with this. I'm just being honest. I need help with this. Lord, help me. And number three, see your money and possessions as a vehicle. As a vehicle to pursue ever-increasing joy in Christ. We can't serve God in money. Let's use what he's given us as a vehicle or as a means to pursuing our joy more in Christ. You have a longing for life and joy. I mean, real life, something deeper than just the superficial life. You have, you have a desire. You have a longing for more than just a fun afternoon watching football. There's, I, I love doing that. But you have, you have a longing for something more than that. You have a longing for deep joy and deep life. And so I just would say, don't settle for that which doesn't and can't satisfy that longing. A guy named Blaise Pascal was alive in the 1600s. He was a mathematician and philosopher. He wrote a book called Pensies. It's um, a book that, uh, pretty well-known book. 
And he had some, there's a lot of wisdom in what he says here. He says there's a craving in every human for true happiness. There's a craving in every human for true happiness. And he says that actually shows that there was, there was once a time when there was true happiness without sin and corruption, of course, in the Garden of Eden. There's a craving for true happiness, true satisfaction, true joy. And he says we try in vain to fill with everything around us. But this infinite abyss in our souls can only be filled with an infinite and unchanging and all-satisfying God. This morning, Jesus would be your all-satisfying treasure if you would have him. He comes to us today through this passage, speaking of these words, to be our all-satisfying treasure today. For anyone who will have him, for anyone who will receive him, seek him first. Pursue him first. Then you will know satisfaction. You will have all of your needs attended to, every single one of them. He'll care for you. And you will have eternal treasures in heaven. This is what I think Second Corinthians 8, 9 wants to draw us into. Listen, to these, these, these words are amazing. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I can't imagine someone pulling that out and saying, see, he wants everyone to have a million dollars. He became poor so that in him we might become eternally wealthy. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, Jesus has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I don't know if you see that connection there, but he says, be content with what you have. Keep your life free from the love of money because Christ has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You have Christ. He became poor so that in him you might become eternally rich. If we have Christ, we are eternally wealthy. Donald Trump, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, none of these people hold a candle to what you and I have, period. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the treasures that you offer us in Christ. God, I, I pray that I did justice this passage. Um, I pray that your spirit would just do your work of probing and encouraging and challenging and convicting and lifting up. Because we all come in with our own individual hearts and lives and they're laid bare before you. But God, I just pray you do your miraculous work in us here today. I just trust you to do that. Jesus, you are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure hidden in a field. That is, we would joyfully, if we knew this treasure, we would joyfully give up everything in order to have you and to have you fully.
Open up our eyes to see if we need to see. And bring your application to each one of us where we are. Our hearts move toward what we treasure. Show us where our hearts are at. And help us to treasure that which is truly satisfying. Namely, Christ, God, Holy Spirit, heaven, our eternal treasures. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. You're dismissed.